um, the Heidelberg Catechism, question 28. And so we read Romans 8, which talks about this idea that nothing can separate us from God's love, not even persecution or sin. But the question that might come to our minds is, okay, it can't separate us, but how is that helpful? And so the question, this question seeks to answer that. So if you'll read with me after I um, read the bold section. The question that is asked is, how does the knowledge that God has created and by his providence upholds all things help us? The answer is that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things, whatever may befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing can separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Good morning again. If you guys want to turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We've been going through the book of Acts, and again, we've been looking at what is Acts? What is this book about? And we're drawing that from chapter 1 mostly, where Luke, the writer of Acts, speaks about the gospel of Luke, and he says that he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so the implication is that this book of Acts is all that Christ continues to do and teach from heaven. So he's died, he's risen again, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, he is currently reigning and ruling, and now he has poured out his spirit at Pentecost to equip his people to, um, to, to see that the gospel goes out to all the nations, that his church has grown. And then we saw sort of the model of not only Acts, but the rest of human history is that, that these people will be witnesses when the Holy Spirit come upon them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so just a brief outline of the book of Acts, and hopefully you've seen as we step back a little bit, that there's sort of been this pattern that's happened, right? God acts, right, in Pentecost. There's this outpouring of the Spirit. There's these other languages that are spoken. And these accusations are brought against the disciples, right? That they're drunk, that they're crazy. And so they deal with those. And we see this escalation happening. Another act happens, right? Peter and Paul, or Peter and uh, John, rather, raise a lame beggar. There's a miraculous act, and people question it, and they're brought before the councils and questioned and ultimately let go. And then, as Seth um, covered last week, again, they're brought before the council, they're questioned, and this time they were arrested, actually. But as Seth talked about, there was a miraculous work where this, the jail was opened and the people, um, the apostles were, were set free. And then this week, we'll see this escalate even more, that they will not only be apprehended again, but this time they'll ultimately be beaten for their faith and for not repenting of um, preaching this gospel that the people are telling them not to. So we're seeing this escalation of persecution. We'll see that come to a head in chapter 7 with the death of Stephen. But some questions we can ask is, how, how are the apostles going to respond to this persecution? We've seen them respond well so far, but this time they're going to be physically assaulted um, for their faith. So... Um, those are some questions that we can ask as we get into the text. And in the back of our minds, we can think, how would we respond? You know, how, 
have we faced persecution and things like that. But ultimately, this morning, I hope that we see that it's not just an example of how to face persecution, just do what the apostles did here, but actually we'll see the grounds of why we can have true joy in the midst of suffering. So we'll read chapter 5. We'll continue where we left off last week, verses 26, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, saying, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness for sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. And he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in those days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan of their, if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Um, Dear Lord, we come before you this morning um, humbly. We ask that you would empower uh, the preaching of your word that we would not just see the mere examples of the apostles, but we would see the ground of their rejoicing, even in the midst of suffering, and that this morning that we would have faith in the risen Lord, who even in the face of persecution and tribulation is preserving his people, preserving his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. May we take comfort in that this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So yeah, so thanks to Seth last week for um, filling in. Uh, It was great to be able to uh, go to Michigan and relax and everything. So thanks again to him for that. Uh, So last week, Seth kind of talked about that miracle, right? The people were imprisoned. They were miraculously let out of the prison by this angel of the Lord. And what's the first thing they do? They go back to teaching in the temple. (laughs) They don't skip a bead. They don't question. They go straight to teaching. And so this week, we're going to see the continuation of this story, really the second half of this. And we'll look at three main things. First, the accusation that's leveled against the apostles. 
Then we'll look at the answer that they give to that accusation. And then finally, we'll look at their response, the response of the council and then the response of the apostles. So first, the accusation. We'll see this in verses 26 through 28. It says they apprehended them. And but out of fear of the people, they didn't take them by force. So we can see that they went willingly uh, with these people. They were not resisting. And so they took them, but not by force. And they bring this accusation against the apostles. And it, it's an accusation that comes in two, two charges, essentially. The first one is disobedience, that you didn't listen to us. We told you not to preach in this name, and you're doing it. And the second one is really defamation, if you will. It is that you have brought Jesus' blood on us, that you said that his blood is on us. And this is sort of interesting, if you think about it, because not just one chapter before, what did the apostles say? They said, we cannot but preach about what we have seen and heard. So this council is kind of playing dumb here a little bit. The apostles had just told them, we're going to do this. <laughs> so it's sort of silly that for them to even charge them with this. And then the second thing is, if you remember in Matthew 27... This is, at the, this is um, at the judgment of Christ, right? Before the councils, all the people are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, I found nothing wrong with him. Why do you want this? And they said, his blood be on us and on our children. So they're literally calling the blood of Christ on them, not in a good way, but in a guilty way, saying we'll be responsible for his death. So their charge of disobedience and this blood of Christ being on them is almost laughable because they've left out the parts where the disciple says, we're going to do this. We're going to proclaim his name. And they're, they're forgetting that they called Christ's blood on themselves um, in Matthew 27. So it's just interesting. So this is the accusation. Disobedience, you're not obeying us, and you're calling Christ's blood on us, and they don't like this. And so then in verses, so the second section, we'll see the answer that the apostles given. This is in verses 29 through 32. And so Peter answers both of these very pointedly. What's he say? He says, we must obey God rather than men. So he's doubling down, right? He said the first time we cannot but speak about what we've seen and heard. And this time he says, we must obey God rather than men. So he answers that first charge pretty clearly with, we're not going to listen to you, essentially. We're going to listen to God before we listen to you. And then in the second um, section, he sort of answers their second charge in sort of a mini gospel sermon, if you will. You'll see uh, in verses 30 through 32, the Trinity is mentioned. We see God the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Spirit mentioned. And we see these sort of mini gospel sermon, like I said. We see Christ's person. We see his death and resurrection. We see him exalted to the right hand of the Father. And we see mercy extended. That the reason Christ did these things was so that he could extend forgiveness and repentance to God's people. And I was just thinking about this. We've seen this pattern so many times in Acts already. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 10, Acts 17. There's three parts um, to this gospel presentation. And I think this is helpful because I think a lot of times in our Christian walk, whether we meet someone or maybe it's um, a coworker or uh, someone asks us, what do you believe or what is the gospel? And we can kind of fumble around or sometimes we're even left to just sort of tell our own personal story, you know. Um, you know, I was saved when I did this and blah, blah, blah. But 
there's interesting, there's three main parts to what Peter says here. There's the events, the objective events of the gospel, what Christ has done, his life, death, resurrection. There is the offer of the gospel, repent and believe and receive forgiveness of sins. And then there's the required response to that offer, which is repent, turn from your sin and follow Christ. So even in the midst of answering this objection, Peter is giving a mini gospel sermon, really. And it's amazing to think about, and we'll talk about that in the next section. So we've seen the accusation from the council. We've seen the answer given by Peter and the apostles. And now we'll look at the response, firstly, of the council. And so just look at verse um, 33, if you will. It's just amazing to see this. It says, And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So this is amazing to think about. Peter has just offered mercy to these people, these people that have arrested him multiple times, charged him of these things that are untrue. And yet in the midst of that, he is saying, repent and receive forgiveness. And it's amazing to think about because what is their response to this message of mercy and grace? It's murder. (laughs) They want to kill them. They are not... um, quick to say, wow, that's so great. I'm so glad you offered this. Their response is to turn and to hate them and to kill them. And I was just thinking about this more, and I was reminded of um, a quote from Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, and he says this, answering this question of why, why do some, when they're offered mercy, turn and harden themselves? And this is the quote. Some of you might have heard it. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And he goes on to say that the same gospel that melts some to repentance hardens others in obstinance. That Peter doesn't change his message. It's not a different message for the people that were saved in Acts 1, 2, and 3 and for these people. He does accuse them all of of murdering the Savior. But their response is totally different. It's just interesting to think about. And our confession of sin this morning came from John 3. And I just love that verse. It says, this is the judgment that light has come into world, into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. So because their works were evil. And so we can say that these council members, it was not because they were kept from um, the truth. It was because they loved their ignorance. They loved the evil works that they were doing. And they did not come to the light. So that can sort of answer that question of why. Why did these people want to murder them? So luckily, in God's providence, um, the apostles are preserved. Because this whole thing could have ended right here. They wanted to kill them. They're about to kill them. But God in his providence protects them. And so we read about Gamaliel here. And he was a Pharisee. We read later on in Acts 22 that he actually was one of the teachers of Paul, um, who was earlier called Saul. And so this one is a man that was respected. We read that in the text. And he starts telling these stories of other people that rose up, that had people follow after them, but ultimately they, they came to nothing. And so his, his response to this um, work of the apostles, he sort of tries to reason with the council and say, he sort of takes this hands-off approach to them, if you will. He basically says, if it's of man, it's going to fail. If it's of God, 
it's going to succeed. And I just wanted to pause a moment to talk about this and ask the question, is this really how God works? And I only say that because I think there's some people out there that take this wisdom of Gamaliel and sort of apply it one for one and say, this is good advice, right? If it succeeds, it's of God. If it fails, it's clearly of man. And um, we should ask that question, is this good advice? And this is the logic that many people use to justify things, whether it's um, church growth, right? If it works, then it's right, right? If it works, it's right. Or in worship, right? If it gets people to come, if it gets people excited, then it's right. And this is essentially pragmatism. What is pragmatism? It's the statement that if, it's, if it works, then it's true. It fails to ask the question, is this scriptural? Does this come from the word? It only asks the question, does it work? Does it bring people in? Does it succeed in earthly terms? And this is also the reasoning of a lot of prosperity theology too, right? If you're good, God is blessing you, right? And so it tends to look at the actions of the earth and all these external things. Um, it, tarts, it starts to look at God's providence and try to read into that. And this is easily refuted just by looking at any heretical movement, right? The Mormons have 13 million people. It's successful in a sense, right? 13 million people, but we can see that just because something is successful doesn't mean that it's true. And so um, I was reminded of Psalm 73. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that psalm, but the psalmist is struggling. It's a really interesting psalm. At the beginning, he says, the wicked are prospering. They're fat. Their eyes are full of all these things, and they are not suffering. The wicked people are prospering, and he doesn't understand it. And it says that he almost turns because he sees all the people that are not following God doing well. And outwardly, their lives look great. They're prospering. Everything's going well. But it says that eventually he goes into the temple. He discerns their end. And he ends up praising the Lord. He looks up to heaven. And so we can see that even though some movements, some people will experience God's common grace, whether it's growth or things like that, or even wealth, that those are not the same things as God's special grace in his salvation and his promises and things like that. So ultimately, Gamaliel is really putting forward a half-truth. Because what does he say? If God is doing this, it's going to succeed. That's right. <laughs> That's true. If God wants something to happen, it's going to happen and nothing can thwart his hand. So just a sort of aside there about Gamaliel's um, message. So what happens? We see God in his providence save these apostles. But um, it's not ultimately, right? Because what happens? They are beaten for their faith. So it says they, um, they hear Gamaliel's words. They, he reasons with them. And they bring the apostles back and they beat him. And this would have been 39 lashes. So 40 minus 1. And this was the response of the council. They beat the apostles. And so now we'll look at the response of the apostles in verses 41 and 42. And we read in verse 41, it says, And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. And this should... Um, I don't know. <laughs> this should cause a response from us. They were just beaten 39 times by this council for their faith. And they're rejoicing. And I think even in the context, context, especially of what Seth talked about, 
What happened last time they were arrested? God miraculously saved them from the jail. And it would have been easy for them to say, God, what in the world? Why are you not saving us again, right? You saved us last time. Why not do that again? It would have been easy for them to be resentful and even question God, why have you done this? And they don't do that. Instead, their response is the opposite. They are actually rejoicing. And it says that they are rejoicing. Why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And so we should ask this question of why are they rejoicing in suffering? Why are they rejoicing in suffering? And there's really two things that we can say. The first is that their suffering is promised. If you remember in John 15, Jesus says, the world will hate you because they hated me. Um, I think it's in 2 Timothy, Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in 1 Peter 4, we, went, we read this a couple weeks ago, he says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. So this persecution should not have been a surprise to them. It was promised that this would happen, in a sense. And so it's one thing to know that you're going to be persecuted. It's another thing to rejoice in your persecution. <laughs> I don't know what any of us has faced. Maybe there was a time where you were persecuted for your faith or maybe just persecuted in general. But it's one thing to know that that's coming. It's another thing to rejoice in your persecution. And so we have to ask another question. Why are they rejoicing? And I think the answer that the scripture gives is that they had a better possession. So not only was their persecution promised, but they had a better possession. And we read this. You could turn with me if you wanted to. To Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 verses... um, 32 through 34. The author of Hebrews says this, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. A better possession and abiding one. So that these people that the writer of Hebrews is talking about are able to joyfully accept the plundering of their property because they knew they had a better possession than their earthly one. And we can say that this is true of the apostles. And we see it continued in, um, in Hebrews 11. We see that Abraham was looking to a city that has foundations whose builder and designer was God. And we see Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So we can say the same is true of these apostles, that they are not looking for earthly benefits, earthly possessions, that they have a better possession, that even though they are beaten for their faith, that they have a possession that is better, that is incorruptible. And I was thinking about this a little bit, and it kind of comes to a climax in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run the endurance, the race that is set before us. Verse 2, Looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So we see this example, even in Christ, of for the joy that was set before him, enduring the cross and the shame that comes with it. So we can see that they can rejoice in sufferings, not only because it's promised, but because they have a better possession. And so we see, like last week, they're they are set free, they're beaten, they rejoice, and they go straight to preaching and teaching. In verse 42, it says that they continued to do this, that they did not stop, and that the gospel is continuing to go out, even in the monks the midst of persecution and tribulation. So this is our text. Let's take a minute to step back to try to apply what we've seen in the text and contemplate how this affects us. So three things this morning. First is that our obedience is first and foremost to God. And we see this statement from Peter. We must obey God rather than men. And I think this is easier said than done in a lot of ways. And so how can we start to do this? How can we wrap our minds around this idea of obeying God rather than men? And it doesn't just look like um, civil persecution. Sometimes it looks like in our own lives, choosing um, what God has said over what man tells us to value or things like that. And so something I was thinking about is that it is helpful, and I think we can say the apostles apply this as well, that they even though they're citizens of earth, that they are ultimately looking to their citizenship in heaven. That is why they're able to suffer these persecutions and obey God rather than men because they know they have a better heavenly possession. And this is good news. And secondly, so we looked at that our obedience is to God rather than men. And secondly, we must be careful to not read the book of providence, sort of taken from a Thomas Watson, Thomas Watson, quote, I believe, that we have to be careful not to read the book of Providence. That's sort of what Gamaliel does here, is he tries to read the surroundings. Is it successful? Does it work? Do people come? Are people excited about it? To try to understand what God is doing. And even though we should, we can thank God for his providence when things do work, when, like we read in our... um, Um, confession of faith this morning that we can be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity Um, so but we just have to be careful not to read the book of providence that's sort of what does that mean Um, you might hear it said like this I got a front row parking spot at Walmart that means God's happy with me right or I've heard someone say this they they openly said that they believe the prosperity gospel they believe that Christ had purchased healing for everyone. And at that time, his two daughters were sick. And I said, well, why are your daughters sick if God's per- purchased this perfect healing for everyone? And he said, well, I must not be right with God. And so he was looking at his surroundings. He was looking at his sickness. And it must have been his fault. And this is ultimately crippling. And so we have to be careful not to do this. We must not look and try to read the book of Providence. And we see this in psalm 73 like i talked about the the psalmist is tempted to look at the the prosperity of the wicked and to fall into the same sin but by the end he says these words who have i in heaven but you O god my heart and my flesh may fail but you are my strength and my portion forever so he can look to heaven not to earth 
not to the things of this earth, to take joy and hope and ultimately persevere in his faith, even amidst the wicked prospering in his day. So we must obey God rather than men. We must not look to the book of providence. We must look to God in his word. And then finally, we can take comfort knowing that God will preserve us. I think that that's what the apostles here are taking comfort in, that God will preserve them, that even in the midst of sin and suffering, that God will preserve them. Um, And here, I think it's important to point out that the apostles and even Jesus are not just a moral example of how to rejoice in suffering. And I think sometimes this even gets used really poorly. What do we say to people? You just need to rejoice in your suffering because the apostles did it, because Jesus did it. Just do it. And the book of Acts and even Christ's suffering becomes sort of just a moral guide to live a better life. And ultimately, that becomes a law on people. You just need to do this because that's what Jesus did. But really, what did we read in Hebrews 12? For the joy... Oh, no. Sorry, let me read it. It says this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, So Jesus is here not just an example of what to do, how to have joy in suffering. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith that causes us to look to heaven, to look to the things that are not seen so that we can suffer well, so that we can actually rejoice in our sufferings. Christ is not just an example. He's the one that's actually purchased our perseverance and our faith and has given it to us, the ability to turn to him and to not look to our surroundings. Um, He's the reason for our hope. And so um, we can take joy in this. And like we sang uh, in the song, In Christ Alone, in that final verse, it says, No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. So this morning, whether we're facing sin in our lives, whether we're facing suffering, maybe it's persecution, maybe it's sickness, even though we're tempted to look to the things of this world and to rest in them and take comfort in them, hopefully we can see not only the example of Christ and the apostles, but ultimately what Christ has purchased in being the founder and perfecter of our faith. We have an inheritance that's in heaven, imperishable, undefiled and unfading and we can take joy in that looking to heaven this morning so would you pray with me dear lord we come before you this morning um humbled by your word by the persecution of the apostles here um we can even tremble thinking of being beaten for our faith we're very blessed to live in a country where that is not happening And we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that are experiencing this sort of persecution right now. And we pray this morning, Lord, that in the face of persecution that is mounting and in the face of suffering in our lives, that we would look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And that we might have a joy this morning, even in the midst of suffering and persecution, because nothing can separate us from your love, that... No one can condemn us if we are found in Christ. And so may we look to Christ this morning, trusting in him alone for salvation, receiving and resting in all that he's done. Would you help us this morning to do that? In your name we pray. Amen.
you guys want to stand with me, we'll sing song number one before the throne. Sing with me the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy benediction this morning is from Jude 24 and 25 where we hear of God's keeping blessing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory 
with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Grace and peace as you go. Yeah. Okay.